Hi, my name is Alad Gross. Welcome to the Alad Pod, an online, uncensored town hall program designed to bring our government back to you. Every episode is a recording of our live show with special guests and questions asked by audience members like you. In our ongoing series on justice reform, we speak with Sydney Mayfield, the assistant prosecutor for Saline County. We talk about the specific needs of rural Missouri when it comes to justice reform, diversion courts, and the important role the prosecutor plays in our justice system. Thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm, it's a Saturday, so I'm not working real hard, taking a little time off, going to make some potato salad later, so I'm doing pretty good. All right. Okay. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, I need to, I need to eat, so I might be coming over soon. But you are a bit away from me. Uh, could you tell us where is, uh, well, where are you right now uh, in this virtual, uh, virtual world, world of ours? I'm sitting in my, I guess, entryway of my house in Pilot Grove, Missouri. Okay. And for those of for those folks who are not familiar with Pilot Grove, where is that located in the state? Sure. So Pilot Grove is in Cooper County, Missouri. So we're about seven miles south of I-70. If you're familiar with Boonville, I mean, that's, that's the county that I reside in. It's the same county Boonville is located in. Mm-hmm. And so you are uh, an assistant prosecutor for Saline County. So that's a different county than the one that you are in currently, right? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's Saline County. Marshall is the county seat. Mm-hmm. So if you're familiar with Marshall, Missouri, that's where Saline County is. I didn't really want to, at the time, prosecute people I knew. <laughs> I knew if I started out as a prosecutor in Cooper County, I might end up knowing a lot of people I had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you, so, you know, I, I know uh, the prosecution systems are, are a little bit different depending on which county you're in. Um, so how did you, I guess, you know, I, how did you get involved in uh, this kind of work? Because um, I know you've worked in, in different counties with, you know, as the attorney for those counties, right? Right. So I graduated from law school in 2003. So I've been in practice for close to 17 years now. And I have only been a prosecutor for about a year and a half. So this was obviously a later career choice. Um, I still do a lot of municipal work. So I represent cities primarily in Missouri. Um, For instance, um, the city of Centralia, the city of Tipton, um, providing legal advice to municipal entities on things like the Sunshine Law. Mm -hmm. I know about that one. Yeah, that one's a special one. (laughs) Just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, For those of you who do not know, the Sunshine Law is our uh, state's transparency law. So you might have heard of the Freedom of Information Act. That's the federal version of that. And uh, the one that we have here, like so many other states, came about after uh, President Nixon's administration. There were a couple of things that we wanted to be able to uh, see what our government was doing. And so uh, that's that's why we have those laws. And uh, a lot of local local governments really have to deal a lot with the Sunshine Law because there's a lot of requirements on local governments um, regarding compliance, like with open meetings and all of those kinds of things. Right. Yeah, Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I guess why it's, you know, we have, we have some young folks who watch this, uh, and, uh, we had Mayor Shivers from Mexico, Missouri on, uh, last time. And we talked about, you know, I, I always think is interesting is folks paths to where they are today. Um, so what, you know, I mean, you, you can choose one, you don't have to choose to be a lawyer, right? You could do anything else that you want. And then two, uh, why this kind of law, why, why has this been something that you've you've been wanting to do and you have been doing for quite some time now. Yeah. So I saw a lot of the issues from a perspective when I served as a guardian ad litem, I did a lot of guardian ad litem work where I represented children who were in abused or neglected situations. And what I began to realize the more I got into that guardian ad litem work is I guess for lack of a better word, the real power to control both the outcome and the direction of those situations 
really comes with the prosecutor. If you want to see true criminal justice reform, in my view, it has to begin with the prosecutor as well. Um, I've talked to a couple of people who, oh, I want to be a defense attorney. I want to take on the system. I, I want to, you know, represent people who I feel have been wrongly accused. Well, the damage by that point is usually already done. When someone is charged with a crime, you know, maybe they're in jail waiting, you know, to post bond or something of that nature. So they've lost their house. They've lost their job. The real power and responsibility does come with a prosecutor. And it's a position that I take very seriously. I, you know, I appreciate criminal defense attorneys tremendously. They come in and step in where the system is broken down, in my opinion. So I feel if I want to make a change, kind of like the man in the arena, you can't make the change by sitting in the crowd. You have to get down there and fight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, it's, 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 someone has to initiate the charge, right? And so that's going to come from the prosecution side of everything. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, when we look at the justice system as a whole, obviously defense attorneys are very important. And in, in America, in so many situations, including if you look at civil cases, which we, we're not even talking about right now, but folks can't afford access to an attorney. They just don't have one. They get, you know, bad deal as a result of that. Um, but it, I think you're right. When, you, when you're talking about reform and change in justice, you have to look at, like, where is, where is the power flowing from? And uh, in, in our system, oftentimes prosecutors have quite a bit of power um, in so many of these areas, whether that's not just, not just in terms of, like, how the cases are going to go in court, but also some degree policy because you're choosing what to prosecute, what not, uh, which situations call for it. Um, so, I mean, have you, have you seen... I guess, you know, thinking about the, that role in our justice system, um, you know, are, are there thoughts in general that you have about whether that role, any changes need to be made or, or is it more that we just need as a people, we need to be paying more attention to it, especially when we're going to the polls? I mean, I think there's, that's probably cuts both ways. Mm. Um, there are changes that need to be made. For instance, the voters, has it been a year ago, a little over a year ago, went to the polls to legalize medical marijuana, for instance. They have rolled out regulations surrounding it, but yet there are still criminal laws on the book that will oftentimes criminalize the possession of marijuana. I'm just the assistant prosecutor, and so we're supposed to be prosecuting the laws that are on the books. So really, the legislature needs to take a look at those crimes to determine if there needs to be change in the language. Um, it's the same thing with like financial exploitation of the elderly. That is a charge that is a complicated charge. It's a very difficult one to prosecute and take to trial. And it's one that we see very often where a vulnerable individual is taken advantage of. And so obviously there is an area of concern, but that's where the voters need to be paying attention because they need to be electing people that are willing to listen to local officials. And I'm sorry, but I haven't seen a lot of that. It seems like folks get to Jefferson City, and all of a sudden, the folks were smart enough to vote for them to get to Jefferson City, but suddenly they're not smart enough to take care of their own back home. And so we seem to limit local control. We seem to forget local people's voices. And I don't have a lot of people turning to me as a prosecutor and asking me what needs to be changed, nor am I elected as far as I'm aware. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it would correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but it does seem like there is pretty significant potential in Missouri for folks in Jefferson City, policymakers, um, to actually get a lot of input from people who are on the ground in different counties to see what the needs are and what, what I guess, what these ideas could be. It just seems, Am I wrong to say that it seems like a lot of folks are out there with the experience, but we're not really, we're not really involving them in the right way? Yeah, and there is an organization that, you know, just like any other organization of professionals, like the Missouri Bar, we have the Missouri Association of Prosecuting Attorneys. They're an organization that brings together elected and other prosecutors across the state to um, 
assist with development of policies, but I will just say oftentimes it seems like the larger jurisdictions tend to get more of the attention, and I work in a very rural part of Missouri, and what we're seeing may not be the same as what St. Louis and what Kansas City is seeing, especially with regard to, um, I think St. Louis had the workhouse, correct? Yes, correct. That's right. And I'm not familiar with that as I should be more familiar with it, but I'm not. But I am pretty confident in Saline County, we don't face the same issues as St. Louis and St. Louis County does. So when you craft a solution that fits for St. Louis or Kansas City, there are unintended repercussions that impact other jurisdictions. Right, right. Yeah, I think I think that's totally right. I mean, that's kind of the idea behind having local prosecutors. It's not like a statewide, you know, it's not all coming from, uh, you know, I don't know if you would call a state prosecutor, we have the attorney general, but it's not all coming from one central office. The idea is that local, I mean, local control is important in determining, you know, how, how the justice system is going to work on that local level. Yeah, and absolutely. And local prosecutors tend to have, we tend to know the people that we come into contact with mm-hmm. in courts. Um, like, for instance, one of these, I hope you get around to a question, but like one of the things as a prosecutor, as we talk about this, that I think needs to be more emphasized are alternatives to incarceration. I think there needs to be more emphasis, especially coming from prosecutors to the extent we can, to encourage more involvement in drug courts, more involvement in mental health courts. But to do that, we're going to need resources and we need providers. And so in St. Louis and Kansas City, you have a lot more providers and resources to affect those types of alternatives to incarceration. Mm. Those don't always exist, like, for instance, where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Sydney brought up a very good point. If you are watching, you can go ahead and write your questions into the comments too, and we can see those. And I know I've gotten a couple on my phone already, so if you're watching on the website, you can text that number too. But if you are watching on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, you can type in your questions right there, and we'll be able to see them, and I can actually drag those on the screen versus the ones that are texted. But yeah, no, actually, I did have a question um, that came out about uh, diversion courts specifically, Um, which is what you're talking about in terms of, you know, alternatives to um, more traditional prosecution. Could you tell us first um, what, I mean, you kind of explained a little bit, but what those diversion courts are for those who are a little bit less familiar? So I will at least speak to what I am familiar with, which is in Saline County. Again, I can't speak for St. Louis and Kansas City because they have resources that we just simply don't. But in diversion, the goal there is, not to put an individual through intensive supervision through probation and parole or even a private probation and parole. The goal is to, especially if it's a drug court, is to get them treatment, to involve them in groups where they can talk about addiction, get past addiction. Um, There's a lot of mental health counseling that goes along with that, with the end goal that a person will receive what's known, at least in in Saline County, they get an SIS, which is known as a suspended imposition of sentence, meaning if you successfully, successfully complete either drug, mental health, or diversion, your sentence is suspended, and eventually it's not an actual you're not convicted. You pled guilty, but you're not convicted of the crime. So that would be one goal. Diversion can also be in some places. We don't have that in Celine, and I wish we did. It's more of a deferred prosecution where we, if we put you through a program and you show that you can successfully complete it, we don't even file the charge at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some cities have that. We, where I am at, we just don't have the resources to really accommodate that. Right. Uh, what... I guess what kind of, you know, if we're talking about resources for for different areas, um, what would that look like? Would that look, do you think that would look like something coming from the state that would be going to places that have less resources? Like what, how, how do you think we could do something in Missouri to make sure that folks are supported in different counties? 
Well, I mean, I definitely think that's up to the local voter, but mm. it does not seem like there's been a lot of support for any sort of, let's say, a targeted tax. And I know that I understand that tax is a dirty word. I get it. Nobody wants to pay extra taxes. But if you're asking me for a solution, that's a possible solution is a targeted tax that goes to perhaps, um, you know, criminal justice reform or, you know, mental health court or diversion court. So those funds are specifically expended for a very specific and narrow purpose. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like recently, even if a county or a city wants to be able to increase taxes for a program and their local voters are in support of that, they don't have the tools and mechanisms available to do it. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, you know, in, in general... Um, so that we can kind of look through, because I do want to talk a lot about, you know, different different ideas for reforms uh, in the justice system. And I've got a, I have a friend who uh, doesn't really call it justice reform. She says we need to build a true justice system, which I think is a great way to look at it um, because it makes you kind of analyze all the different pieces of it. But, you know, from from your so your involvement in a case um, could you describe what that looks like from, you know, the beginning through, you know, I guess on a general level, cause we're not talking about a specific case or anything, but how, once you first become involved as a prosecutor and then through the end of the case. Sure. I think there's a misconception that if a prosecutor sees a wrong, that we can just prosecute it ourselves. And that's not the way it works. And I know that frustrates people, but we have to receive an, a report. It's known as a probable cause statement. It comes in from law enforcement. So whether it's a local city like Marshall Police Department in my case, or the county, Saline County Sheriff, we have to receive in a probable cause statement. Law enforcement's role is to investigate and gather evidence. Once they, you know, have investigated and gathered evidence, they collect all of that together and then they send it to our office. So it comes in a variety of formats. Oftentimes it's just a, a paper probable cause. If there are pictures, if they have video or whatever evidence they have at that point, it's given to us to evaluate. And that's what we do. We evaluate it. We read through the probable cause, the reports, and the prosecutor makes a determination of what charge to file. So, um, I don't know, pick a crime. What crime do you want me to talk about? Because it's Ooh. easier sometimes to walk through a crime um, when I'm given an example. Well, well, let's, let's talk about, let's, um, you know, cause then we can talk about this a little bit too. What are you seeing? Are you seeing like uh, a, a bunch of one type in your area or is it pretty much a mixed bag for you? Well, we deal a lot with methamphetamines. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to say, yeah. That's probably one of the most frequent types of charges and crimes we see, um, second only to domestic assault. Mm -hmm. And right now, we have definitely seen a very large increase in domestic assault as well as child abuse. Yeah. Um, but let's take a meth case just sure. because those are usually easier to work through. So if somebody is charged with possession of methamphetamines, that is a felony. It's a D felony in the state of Missouri. Um, our felonies go from E, D, C, B, and A, A being the highest felony. So we evaluate, we look for lab reports to see if the lab has confirmed the presence of meth, and then we file the charge. Um, sometimes we have to ask law enforcement for things like, um, I noticed a cell phone was taken into evidence when a person was arrested. Do we need to search the cell phone? So we may ask law enforcement questions, things like, do you need a warrant? Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of thing. And sometimes we look at charges and we're like, wait a second, what was your probable cause for this stop? Because so many people... I do not know why this is, but so many crimes occur in the car. I mean, I guess if there's a free piece of legal advice I can get out of this, there's probably two things I should tell you. One, always carry your insurance card with you. Please, people, carry your insurance card. And number two, don't commit a crime in your car because the probable cause is, it, you know, it definitely lowers when you commit a crime in your car. And so, you know, we evaluate that thing or those items. We give feedback to law enforcement if we do see something problematic. But there are only two prosecutors in my office, myself and my elected. Mm. And we look at thousands of cases a year. So it is, it's stressful because... I don't know. I don't know about every prosecutor, but I know the worst case scenario for me is prosecuting an innocent person. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
that's, I mean, that's my greatest fear. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And yeah. So once there's just we'll finish the process, but yeah, I think, I think that's an important once the case is over, there is the appellate procedure. Um, and then that will mostly go through the attorney general's office. I mean, all the cases will go through that criminal appeal system. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I wonder, there's a lot of talk about these, um, conviction integrity units or conviction review units, um, which are, you know, the same thing, they're two different names. Some folks prefer one versus the other. Um, you know, those are supposed to basically, to some degree, be quality control. But oftentimes, we're asking prosecutors to to have those in their own offices. Um, and I know, I know that in St. Louis County they have one. In St. Louis City, they've got one. Um, but it sure sounds like adding that to an office like yours and asking you to do that on top of the thousands of cases you have probably wouldn't work too well. No, and. We've gotten, I mean, there have been changes in bond rules recently, largely, you know, motivated by some of the injustices that have been had by keeping people with excessively high bond. We now have bond release hearings every, well, if you, if you, if we file a charge and you're picked up on a warrant and you're taken to jail and you're not able to make the bond that the judge has posted, you are entitled now under the new rules to a release hearing within seven days of your initial appearance. So there has been a lot more time taken in our courts and I think many courts with these bond hearings. Um, so yeah, I cannot imagine at, you know adding an integrity review process and it's very difficult, I think, to investigate yourself and whether or not you did everything right with your case. As an attorney, you get very passionate about your case, and you really do need someone else to come in and make sure that, you know, I guess all the I's were dotted and T's are crossed. Right. Right. I mean, the whole the whole system is supposed to be one based on checks and balances. We hear about that all the time. And I mean, you were just describing, just talking about, which is why I like to talk about the process too, because, you know, you're talking about law enforcement officer bringing something to you and then you're looking at it too. And, you know, the idea is to, to, to at least some degree, you're checking on each other and that's supposed to, you know, at least eliminate some of the, the problems in the system, but having, you know, another check along the way, um, especially when, you know, the, the worst situation is exactly what you described, having somebody who's sitting in jail or prison who should not be there. Um, you know, it was an interesting, it was an interesting model that, um, they were, they were working on in Colorado for a while with a former attorney general, um, who is not there anymore, but they actually brought the innocence project and they were working very closely with nonprofits that often look at, especially higher profile death penalty cases, because you really don't want to execute somebody who's innocent, but they actually embedded them within the office and they used them before they had this big, you know, conviction integrity or review terminology that's now all over the place. Um, but they actually brought them in and, uh, it was a really interesting cause it was a statewide effort versus having to require, you know, local prosecutors who might not have all of the resources to have to do it themselves. So, um, you know, something that could be an interesting model for Missouri because this is not the first time I've heard that, um, you know, I've got some prosecutor friends in the boot heel area too, who are having a lot of trouble with the bond hearings. Not that they oppose like the concept because they don't think somebody should be in there who shouldn't, but it's just a lot more work on top of what they already have to do. Yeah. And especially for smaller offices like ours, where there's two attorneys. So, you know, it's the same thing. It's, it's very difficult. And then you're, you know, trying to figure out, well, is this person or should this person be held with a higher bond than this person? You know, is this person, you know, likely to be a danger to the community? Um, do you know, does their past criminal history reflect on that? Do they have a home plan? Do they have a stable place to go? And I will say that having the home plan and a stable place for someone to get out to is probably the most difficult aspect when we look at these bond release hearings, because the last thing you want is to release somebody who say is addicted to methamphetamines back into a home that is not going to support his or her recovery efforts. And that is, I mean, it's, it's hard conversations and it puts a lot of pressure on public defenders too. I mean, Mm -hmm. we haven't talked about the role of the public defender, but I tell you what, if I, 
as a prosecutor don't have a good public defender on the other side, it makes the whole process break down. And I actually have an excellent public defender who works in Saline County. Um, his name is Stephen Merle. I cannot speak highly enough about him. He and I really, truly do work as a team trying to get to, you know, a just result because that's in that you know in the end that's what we're trying to do is achieve a just result. But it only works if you've got a good defender on the other side, kind of working in opposition, but together with you as the prosecutor. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to ask actually that was that was my next line because I've done a lot of work with uh, public defenders. But yeah, is there is is he the one for the county? He is. He basically takes on 85%. There is a fill-in attorney that kind of comes in that I will call him a floater. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the public defenders have been largely underfunded. And I know that's not really a role of the attorney general in Missouri. But at the same time, um, you do have a division that oversees, you know, special cases and, you know, special prosecution appointments. Again, you can't have justice if the scales are tilted one direction. You can't. It doesn't work. Right. So the public defender system has to be supported in order for this system to function as it was intended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you, you really need to take a system view of it, right? Instead of just looking at, here's my particular job in, in this office. Like that's We want it to work that way, right? You wanted to say, oh, you do your job. And, uh, that's the way it's gotta be. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not working that way. And we really have to figure out, um, you know, how we look at the system as a whole, especially when you're talking about statewide leadership and, and folks in Jefferson city, that should be their job. Their job should be to make sure that this system works overall. Is that a cat? Cat just jumped on. Hey buddy. Well, this is, this is cat named Kitten. She's got a different name, but she's going to join us for the interview. So if you have any questions for her, you can also submit those in the comments and I'll ask to see if she's got any comments on it too. Uh, yeah. Sydney, by the way, uh, for those of you who follow our furry friend Friday special, Sydney's cat was on there and is a terrific, wonderful cat. Where's your cat right now? Sleeping somewhere? Well, she's sitting down here to the right of me and she's okay. looking at, she's a demo cat, by the way, a demo cat. It's good. It's good. <laughs> This one, I don't know. I think this one's too young to vote yet. So uh, I'll ask her. We'll, you know, maybe maybe get her get her uh, educated civically and figure out what we could do with her. Uh, you know, we had I did have another question. Man, they're coming through on text today. You know, you all on Facebook and Twitter, you all can ask your questions, too. Don't worry. Um, this question comes from Mark C. Uh, he says, what <laughs> what types of steps are being taken right now in the prosecutor's office? to address issues of bias. So in your specifically, if you know of some that are working uh, statewide too, that'd be great. He also says go Duke, which I appreciate. So, uh, but uh, yeah, what, what, so regarding bias, are there any trainings or anything that's going on? Are there any statewide efforts around uh, issues of bias right now in prosecution? Not really. I mean, at least, you know, not from where I'm sitting and what I am aware of. Um, We get some bias training now as part of our, annual CLE. We're supposed to have a diversity and a bias training, which is a one-hour CLE credit that all Missouri attorneys are required to take. But in terms of like requiring bias training in the prosecutor's office, I'm not aware of anything like that. I know there has been a bigger push for bias training in law enforcement, but again, I don't know of any like requirements and I'm not even familiar with any um, organized group like I don't know, fraternal order or police or something like that is that is encouraging or calling for that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's oftentimes hard to see our own biases. Um, you know, we, if we sit there long enough and I think we should, we like, we really should take time to do that. But, um, do you think that that would be helpful? I mean, we talk a lot about that for police and law enforcement, but do you think that would be helpful for prosecutors too? Yeah, I think education in any form, whether it's bias training, diversity training, you know, you've, it's never wrong to get more education. It's never more. It's never wrong to get more training. So do I think that we should have more? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what? So, well, one, because substance abuse in our state is a big deal. Um, we actually have I know the opioid lawsuits are ongoing. We're going to get close to a settlement potentially at some point. 
And there's going to be a lot of questions about where that money is going to be used. And a lot of folks are advocating for increased substance abuse uh, treatment. We've got uh, Medicaid expansion, which is going to be on the ballot on August 4th as Amendment 2. And a lot of what happens when you expand Medicaid, you actually increase the opportunity for folks to get treatment for substance abuse. And having worked with a number of law enforcement officers, they're often uh, Jefferson County I was hanging out with a lot, and they would talk a lot about how they are responding to so many issues around substance abuse. And uh, I've talked about it on this show before, but if you look at the statistics of folks who are in our prison system right now, 90 plus percent uh, have some kind of a substance issue with substance abuse. And so I know we talked uh, about methamphetamines um, in, in your office's involvement there. Um, I mean, you're so, so you're seeing it, right? And so you're taking it beyond just like the incident of law enforcement because now you have to get deeper into the cases and you're seeing folks come in. You often see family members who might come into uh, into courtrooms. Uh, there's been discussion about treating these kinds of issues as a public health one versus a criminal one. Do you have any thoughts about that? You know, I think that's correct. Um, but you need more programs. You need more providers. Um, the justice system was not designed to be a mental health treatment program, which is what which is what it has turned into be. I have so many cases where substance abuse ties in with mental health and absolutely no resource other than DOC incarceration. Now, DOC does offer, if Department of Corrections, I'm sorry, yeah, if you sent to the Department of Corrections, um, they do have two types of programs. One of them is known as ITC, Institutional Treatment, where you can go for 120 to 180 day treatment in the Department of Corrections for substance abuse. Then you have long-term treatment, but in order to qualify for long-term treatment, you have to have a specific number of felony offenses that you have pled guilty to and to even qualify. Um, so often, what I struggle with as a prosecutor and what I also see my public defenders or other defense attorneys struggling with is we've got an individual who was picked up, let's say, for methamphetamines and then some sort of violent act. They do seem to go hand in hand. Methamphetamines and domestic violence are, are very often two common tied crimes. What the person needs is to be released for inpatient treatment. The problem is there aren't enough inpatient treatment facilities or beds. And then secondly, it has to be a specific type of inpatient treatment. It can't be a type of treatment where the person goes for two or three days and I'm like, oh, I'm cured. Right. Don't have a problem anymore. I'm checking myself out. So it is a massive problem. I swear if I could answer this for you and have a good solution, I, you would be calling me Madam President. I wouldn't be Sydney Mayfield, the assistant prosecutor, because this is not just a Saline County. Mm. It's not just a Missouri problem. This is a problem that is all across the United States. We just don't have enough resources. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, what we're seeing right now in so many different ways um, is what happens when you don't invest in those public institutions and you ask them to do everything. Um, and I think we're, we're seeing the results of that right now in our healthcare system, education, justice system, obviously, too. Um, it's, it's becoming a common theme, unfortunately, on, on our podcast so far. But um, one that, you know, at least makes you think, well, um, maybe there is a way if we if we start to invest in those resources to actually deal with it, and I think there, there are more and more voices coming out and saying we really need to get that done. Um, yeah, and the hope is if we expand Medicare and we expand those programs, maybe there will be more money right. so that an individual in the private sector will look at that as an opportunity for them to expand into. So, hmm. you know, I'm at least hopeful. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's going to um, there'll be a big vote in August to see. But, uh, yeah, I think a lot of folks are, are pushing very hard for that right now because they want to see it. And, you know, I, I actually got to talk to a lot of folks uh, this morning um, in uh, one of the – we have a, um, a food distribution that uh, the Urban League is doing in, in the St. Louis area at least. And, 
hundreds and hundreds of cars and so many volunteers coming out to, you know, to help folks and make sure they're getting food. And, um, you know, I was in line volunteering to register voters and, you know, let them know about the opportunity to vote absentee. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of folks wanted to talk about, uh, what was on the ballot, what that means, what Medicaid expand, but when you mention it, when you mention Medicaid expansion, folks, immediately knew what it was. Yes, we should have that because they, they, it's already tied to, oh, I don't have access to, to this insurance or I don't have access to this treatment or I know somebody who couldn't get it. And I think that's impacted so many folks in Missouri, um, especially those who don't have as many resources as everybody else. Um, and and I, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I mean, that's, well, we'll vote on it and we'll find out. But um, at least I can say I'm a big supporter of Amendment 2 and I hope folks vote for it. So and August fourth, you should go do it, and that's 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 my uh, my comments. I won't you know impute anything on other folks, but yeah. Oh, I'm in support of it too. I'll Great. Okay, there we go. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> well, I was just waiting. We have to have it. I mean, it's it's. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to look at criminal justice reform, if you're going to look at reforms of systems, you've got to have the resources in order to build the reform. As your friend said, if we want to build a justice system, mm-hmm. we've got to have a solid foundation and expanding. Medicaid will give us a solid foundation. I mean, it's so I hope people do turn out and I hope they support it in August. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and you know, the more what I like about this and for folks, if you haven't seen episodes or heard episodes before, if this is your first one. Cool. Welcome. Uh, but you can go to the website, a lot live and we'll have you know everything up on later. But when you go, you can see like folks from from these different levels. And this is why I really like having folks who have done different things. And Sydney asked me, am I your first prosecutor on? Yes, you are. I mean, we had a former prosecutor on, but you are my first current prosecutor on. And to see like folks speaking about healthcare and education, all of these different things, I think we can all see the connections between those different systems and how they impact each other. And if somebody doesn't have education, they don't have a very strong education, their opportunities are diminished. And if they don't have uh, healthcare, they don't have access to it, then their opportunities are also reduced. And then, then you, eventually the justice system is now kind of that backstop to the failures of all of these other systems. And now we don't know what to do with you. We didn't give you really a chance to start with, and you end up here because you did something that uh, society says is wrong. You probably knew was wrong, but in your you know, the stress or whatever else is going, that's, that's where you are. And we're asking that system to fix all the problems that have happened upstream of you. And it's just, you know, it's, 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 there's so many folks who are working so hard in these broken systems, but the system isn't working at all. And it's, it's unfortunate because, you know, people want this to work and, uh, it, it just, it's not working. It's just really not. So yeah, I think amendment two is a very big deal. Um, and it's unfortunate that we have to push that on to Jeff City right now because they did not expand it. And we're one of the few states now that hasn't expanded Medicaid. But hopefully we'll change that in uh, on August 4th. So, yeah, my little rant for the day. So, all right, let's talk because, uh, you know, we're, we're getting to the end-ish, but we've got some time left. So let's talk about the heavy stuff. All right, we're talking about uh, justice reform or however you want to phrase it, changes in our justice system what are, you know, we talked about the resources, the investment, and, and looking at this as a systems approach is what a lot of folks refer to it to. But um, what are tangible things that you see, like day-to-day basis, you're just like, wow, I really wish we were doing this better. What are like focus areas from your experience that you would hope policymakers would look to in Missouri? Well, like one of the things that I think came into very stark focus recently was a shooting death of a woman in Pettis County, which is a county just south of Saline. And she was shot um, by a sheriff's deputy who was not wearing a body camera, was not, did not have a camera rolling on the car. Um, and so you lacked that information to know what happened. But then subsequently, instead of having an external investigation of the actions of the officer, we're relying on internal investigations from departments. There was a story published that subsequently highlighted in Pettis County. I believe there were five total deaths in Pettis County related to law enforcement in the past five years. Mm. And unless the Pettis County Sheriff asks for assistance investigating those outside, 
they may never properly be investigated. Just no other outside agency may be involved. So one of the things I think needs to be looked at is mandatory outside review of certain police department and sheriff department actions, especially when it involves, you know, a shooting death. So whether it is an officer involved shooting or something of that nature, if someone dies as the result of a law enforcement contact, it should not be an internal case. Mm-hmm. The officers should not be investigating their fellow officer to bring forward a crime. Does that make sense? So I don't want um, police department A where a shooting happens and someone dies as a result of somebody, an officer in police department A, doing the investigation and determining whether or not I as a prosecutor should bring a charge. Right. So that right there is a policy thing or a policy decision I think needs to be discussed. It's if there is a death involving, you know, an individual, that that agency not be the one investigating it. Now, I know that that sounds burdensome, and I truly do understand that. Mm -hmm. And I haven't thought it out all logistically. I mean, that's where I would be relying on other people, you know, who have expertise in this. But it is something I think we need to be talking about is mandatory outside review for officer-involved shootings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the State Highway Patrol um, is there and can get involved in some situations. You know, we were, um, can't remember. We, we, we were, we were talking about this with, uh, respect to, cause I, I talked to some folks with, uh, uh, one of the bigger prosecuting offices in the state. And, uh, you know, I, I asked, Hey, would, do, do you support this? This was something in, in the Ferguson commission report that was released that was commissioned by, uh, governor Nixon, um, that report recommended that the attorney general be very involved in these independent uh, reviews, and the state highway patrol would be part of that too. Uh, and one of the prosecutors, you know, they said, "Well, we've actually got a division that is dedicated to doing a whole lot, which is great. Like they have the resources to do that. Maybe they've got the procedures. And as long as they're very transparent about that, we can see it and we feel good. Well, okay, fine. But I think in in most places in Missouri, um, you know, having having that independent role, whether that is the attorney general or a different office and the highway patrol, which is, which is this entity that can ideally take care. I mean, that they're, they're involved in Pettis County right now. Um, you know, I think, I think makes a lot of sense because we need to ensure that our systems have the public's trust. And it's hard, if, especially if you're a small department or a smaller department to then say, well, I mean, I'm going to investigate my friend over here who I've worked with for all this time. And yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. Um, but but yeah. in that that one, they had to ask DDCC. That's the division within Missouri State Highway Patrol to come in. Right. I think it needs to be mandatory. That's that's at least my opinion. Yeah. Is I just don't think that you know your fellow officers ought to be investigating and you know looking at bringing a crime against another fellow officer. I just I think it needs to be automatically kicked out somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's great. Um, from I mean, we so the accountability standpoint. Um, I, yeah, I think I think that's that's a, a proposal that um, that has been out there for some time, and unfortunately, we really haven't moved too far on it. And it's something I mean, even with these you know these larger departments or whatever, even if they they can you know shift it from one to the other um, and work with each other, and that way there is at least some of that independence there too. Um, okay, so we've got. Uh, these investigate. Is there something else that you'd like to see? Other than just more, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. That is such a, I yeah. won't say that's a loaded question, but there are so many things that I, you know, that I wish I could do. Like I said, I just more training for my law enforcement as well. And when I say my, I'm talking about all of us in this together. I mean, including prosecutors, whether it's, you know, training to understand, um, you know, basic things such as constitutional law. I mean, that is a subject that is sorely lacking from what I understand in police academy training. So there needs to be some reciprocation, and this does fall back on the prosecutor, to work with law enforcement to support them in their efforts to understand basic constitutional law. So if you're looking at reform, I think the curriculum that law enforcement has to go through in order to become certified needs to, one, probably be lengthened. I don't think that somebody carrying a weapon readily capable of lethal use 
is qualified to make judgment calls after a 12-week training. I think then we need to look at possibly expanding the time frame that officers spend, you know, going to school and expanding the involvement of prosecutors in training law enforcement. Um, that's just my opinion. I don't, I mean, I, I think we as prosecutors need to have more of an involvement there, but at the same time, um, I also know that there's only two of us in the office. Right. And as I said, there are thousands of cases. So, um, where's that going to come from? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I have an opinion. I agree a hundred percent. My opinion is it should come from the attorney general's office. I think, um, actually, so I, I, I did a lot of work with, DOC, the Department of Corrections, and you see a lot of the same things. Actually, we had um, uh, 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 Professor Roger Goldman come on, and he spoke a lot about certification, post-certification, which is the certification for law enforcement officers, um, and uh, Heather Taylor, who is the president of the Ethical Society of Police and a homicide sergeant, a homicide detective in St. Louis City, um, who's been calling for a lot of accountability, still is. And, uh, you know, we, we looked at what, what happens in the, in the correction system is that there isn't really a certification. So it happens for law enforcement, doesn't happen in corrections, and he's a proponent of starting one for, for them as well for the same reasons, training and, you know, making sure that folks aren't able to move from one place to the other, which still happens in, in law enforcement too at times, um, but to a lesser degree than it, at least it used to. Um, but yeah, the, the, what, what I, what I saw is in the department of corrections is costing our state a whole lot of money. And oftentimes why it's because people don't understand constitutional law. They don't understand how to uphold the civil rights and the civil liberties that is part of their job, right? Both in correct and in law enforcement. And yeah, I, I told having trained, uh, folks, I 100% agree. It would, I think it would not only help law enforcement do their job better because then they would have a lot of questions answered versus just kind of guessing and hearing this maybe on a YouTube video that they were watching that somebody shared with them. But they'd have somebody that they could go to, somebody they could ask. It doesn't burden uh, um, uh, prosecuting attorneys because you have a centralized location to do that and somebody for them to reach out to. And it will, it will help people avoid you know having their rights violated and save the state a whole bunch of money because they're not suing. And so... I don't know. It seems like it seems like that would be a, a very good situation. And, and I don't know. It, it appears that of all the offices that could do this, especially given how overburdened our system is, the attorney general seems to me to make the most sense. Um, even partnering with organizations like, I don't know, the ACLU and other ones that are out there to get the, the word out to folks. But well, yeah, that's why, you know, I absolutely love the idea of a civil rights enforcement division. Yeah. Why this state doesn't have one, it, it baffles me because it's a division that can help law enforcement, prosecutors, private businesses, public businesses, municipal corporations. I mean, civil rights touch every aspect of both private and public function of government. And so having a resource like what you have proposed is the civil rights enforcement division to me, that's a no-brainer. So that would be a great place as you are talking about training law enforcement. That that office or that division within the attorney general's office could also provide guidance there and then tie back in with the post-certification. Um, it seems to work hand in glove to me. Yeah, 100% agree. 100% agree. Yeah. Uh, we, we are well beyond time for civil rights division in our state. And a lot of other states already have one. Uh, I cannot tell you why Missouri doesn't. I've actually had the opportunity to speak to a lot of folks who are involved in uh, uh, human rights legislation. So that's mostly workplace protections and anti-discrimination stuff in Missouri, uh, but who have heard about this proposal and are just, wow, like this is what I dreamed of having uh, in Missouri when I first started this project in the 70s and 60s and all of this time before it. Um, and we still don't have one. Like we, we have got to finish that work that we started. And I think a civil rights division would make so much sense in so many different areas. So yeah, I totally hundred percent agree. So that's why we proposed it. That's why we're going to do it. So, well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for, uh, folks out there? I always like to give those last few minutes to you, but uh, do you have any words of wisdom for folks, any parting words that you'd like to share with all of our viewers? No, just that, I guess, shortly, you know, if you are watching this and you are going to law school, thinking about going to law school and you want to become an attorney, 
think about becoming a prosecutor. It is absolutely the most rewarding job I have ever undertaken in my 17 years of practice. And I've done a lot of a lot of different types of law. So I would encourage someone to look at this as a career choice, especially if they're going to law school. Um, we in our office, I don't know about other prosecutors, but I'm sure this is probably true. We have a lot of people come in and shadow. So if you're watching and you want to come in and spend a week in our office in Saline County and Marshall watching what a prosecutor does, I mean, that's what we're here for. We're here to train the next generation and, um, doors always open. And I think at some point, you know, we've had an hour, you and I have, <laughs> this has been a great conversation. I suspect yeah. maybe more people will have questions. I'd be more than happy to come back on. Um, if you have anybody else that wants to talk about another issue that kind of overlaps with this, I'd be more than happy to join you again. Yeah, I think that would be great. Uh, folks, take advantage of that opportunity. I know we have a lot of young, they usually watch this like really late at night. I get texts from them like, <laughs> I got 11, 12, and I'm just like, what are you all doing? That's just their, their, their cycle. So, yeah, I, I, I'll connect them with you um, because I think that that's a really, really great opportunity. I had the opportunity uh, to, uh, to be an extern, so that's while I was during, doing a semester, but to do that with, uh, um, in a prosecutorial role with the Department of Justice. And, uh, wow, like, I, yeah, my professor, you know, talked a lot about justice issues and justice reform and said, you, I, I want people to do this so they see – what role the prosecutor plays, how much power is there. And that means if you really want to make a whole lot of changes and, and more quickly, um, definitely consider it. So um, those are, are good words to, to listen to. And folks, we really need a lot more public service attorneys. We need folks who are willing to do that work. So um, hit it, either one of us up. We'd be happy to talk to you. But Sydney, that, that's a great opportunity. So um, please take her up on that. Yeah, we'll connect to you. I, I, you know, I'd like to do something. I don't know if you'd be interested in this. I think this would be a good idea. But one of these where we have a few more guests on to do some kind of a round table. Um, you know, the world has changed a bit, so we're not in person as much with folks. But, um, you know, I know that's changing a little bit now. Um, but, you know, well, everybody's looking at the news to see what's going on. So I'm sure it's going to be different in, in two days. But, um, yeah, I think it would be good to have folks, you know, from different areas. So, um, you know, having you back on would be a pleasure of mine. And I really appreciate the time you already took for this. So, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. Anytime. Thanks for joining us on the Alad Pod. You can participate in future town halls and see all of our past ones at live. You can reach me there, too, and I'd love to hear your ideas. For now, this is Alad Gross, and I'll see you on the next Alad Pod.